So I remember the first lunch, Tyler and I sat with each other and he was just being his dude self and, <laughs> <laughs> and just really easy and really fun. And I just remember thinking, this is gonna be a lot of fun. Something physical and intense is happening. I just don't know if it's sex or murder. Danny, no tingles. There you go. No Danny, no tingles. You heard it here, folks. And when he came out of that coma, he was like, Brandon Lee is my hero. Where can I get that duster? With Peter Hale. Bum, bum, bum. Just being able to find so much joy in Teen Wolf. Welcome to Return to Beacon Hills, a Teen Wolf rewatch podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Kate Colvin, and I'm joined by... Calissa Mullis. And Will Wallace. Every week we'll be watching and talking about the hit MTV series one episode at a time. And this week we're talking about season one, episode 10, Co-Captain. If you're watching Teen Wolf for the first time and you're worried about spoilers, have no fear. This podcast is broken up into two sections, Alpha and Beta. The Beta section is for first timers who are just now finding this awesome series and don't want to be spoiled about what's to come. The second section, Alpha, is where we go full spoilers and talk about not just the current episode, but the entire Teen Wolf series, as well as its place in the fandom. In the show notes of your podcast app of choice, you'll find time codes for the Alpha and Beta sections. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at RTBH Podcast, as well as on Tumblr and TikTok at Return to Beacon Hills. If you'd like to ask us questions or offer suggestions for future topics to discuss, you can email us at returntobeaconhills at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can find us on Patreon at RTBH Podcast. There, our Wolfie patrons will gain access to awesome exclusives, like early access to episodes, Full Moon AMAs, the Beacon Hills Movie Club, where we watch and provide commentary for movies starring the amazing cast of Teen Wolf and featuring the work of our talented crew, as well as guest video interviews and a monthly watch party. So head on over to Patreon slash RTBH podcast and join the pack. This week's new Alpha Patron Hallow goes to Olivia. Thank you for supporting the show, Olivia. You rock, Olivia. We have a question this week from Eric Servant, who's also one of our excellent Alpha patrons. He asks, Jeff Davis said that banshees are not supernatural creatures, and that's why they're not affected by mountain ash. If they are not supernatural creatures, what group do they fall in? Also, can there be male banshees? I just off the bat would like to say I believe there would be male banshees. I don't. It's against men. I mean, Who cares about men? He's right. In mythology, they're always women. So I, I think it maybe depends on how closely you want Teen Wolf's vision of Banshees to align to the Celtic mythology. But as far as whether Banshees are supernaturals, I think Teen Wolf has a very interesting take on sort of, I don't want to say hierarchy because it's not like better or worse, but there being kind of different levels of supernatural power. And I know that when we talked to Jonathan Hall, he had made a comment about being kind of a conduit in the story in a way that's similar to being a conduit with being a completely human character. And I feel like maybe that interpretation is at the core of the idea that the Banshee is not exactly a supernatural creature in the way that the others are supernaturals, in that her power is more of, she's like conductive of power. She's mm -hmm. a live wire and nice. the electricity runs through her, but it's something that she wields as opposed to something that's intrinsic to her. Yeah. I think Jeff Davis's interpretation in that one quote, if, if what he's quoting that when he says, I, I think what Jeff meant when he said that that's supernatural is she's not a shapeshifter. And um, oh, okay. I, I think that's 
when he was saying supernatural, I think he meant act like shapeshifters, what he was saying, because I do think is supernatural, you know, because what she does is supernatural. So yeah, I, I think it's just kind of like a, a mis, misuse of the word supernatural, but that's just me. I feel like Teen Wolf did such interesting things with mythology and, you know, that it was pretty ahead of the game in terms of like sexuality and gender and everything. So I don't think they would have shied away from banshees possibly being male cool. so that's my stance on that yeah at least not without there being commentary to it right right because you know if you think about something like uh ginger snaps not that werewolves in that story can only be women but that story is being told through a lens of gender so i think you could also tell a story about a banshee through the lens of gender and have them only be women, but kind of interrogate that a little bit and break it down and ask, what does that mean? And especially what does that mean in a culture that's kind of moving away from more traditional concepts of what gender means and how it works in Absolutely. society? That'd be awesome. Yeah, I'd watch I'd, the shit out of that. Yeah, me too. I'd write I'd, the shit out of that, actually. Yeah, I would read you writing the shit out of that, actually. <laughs> this week's episode is titled Co-Captain. It was written by Jeff Flaming and directed by Russell Mulcahy. With the identity of the Alpha now revealed, Scott tries to balance passing his classes, protecting his friends, and fending off threats. Peter sets his sights on Melissa. Styles gets his father drunk so he can learn more about the Hailfire and put the final pieces of the puzzle together. Derek sets out to get rid of Jackson before he can reveal their secret, but a run-in with a gang of hunters derails his plan. So for this week, our favorite quote is once again something that Styles says. After coming upon Jackson being questioned by Argent, Styles tells him to go ahead and get in the car because, come on, Jackson, you're way too pretty to be out here by yourself. <laughs> He's not wrong. So for an honorable mention, we have another Styles quote. This is whenever he's kind of feeding his dad alcohol to be able to get information and access to his police files about the hail fire. And he says, you're going to have such a good night's sleep. I'm going to have an eternity in the lowest circle of hell. And our last honorable mention goes to Peter. Scott, if I may interrupt your listing of the top five most impotent sounding threats for a moment, try and remember that I've been in a coma for six years. Don't you think I'd like to have dinner with a beautiful woman? It's, a, it's actually a solid point. It it's is. It's a very solid point, especially when Mama McCall is involved. I still don't think he had the best of intentions. He he absolutely her. did not. He did no. not. But but looking at her, it's like, I mean, felt. Get it. It. felt. Not let him in the house, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. While the rest of the Beacon Hills High School lacrosse team celebrates their victory and their place in the state championship, Jackson reminds Scott that he has just three days to get him what he wants. After which, Jackson will help him get Allison back just in time for the winter formal. He wants that juice. He wants gonna get it. that juice, that sweet, sweet lycanthropic juice, that lichen juice. I'll stop. Danny points out that Scott passed the ball to him every chance he could and takes that as an apology for going moon crazy on him at practice the other day. He says he accepts the apology, even though Scott continues to insist that it was no apology. Danny is just such a good dude. He's just a good dude. Incredibly good dude. It's just like mom will call Danny. Yeah. They're like and, the two good Danny, people. I feel like has the added distinction of being the most even keeled person. Oh, completely. In Beacon Hills. Yeah. And, and like, understandably, you know, Mama McCall is under a lot more pressure. Yeah. Because she's an adult woman, caregiver, provider, you know. But just want to go ahead and shout out Danny because 
he is so relaxed and well-adjusted. It's yeah. just like, and you, you almost like forget that people like that must exist somewhere in Beacon Hills. There's one. <laughs> There's the, so, they have yeah. one. And so that's why he's their pride and joy. It's the yeah, pride yeah. and joy of Beacon Hills. Yeah. Kiahu plays Danny throughout the series very well. Yes, mm-hmm. he does. He's just that bit of ballast that the show needs where I feel like, if he wasn't on the show, it would be too crazy. Like, even if you just <laughs> took him out of the show and changed nothing else, you'd be like, this is too much. I really think this is too much. No Danny, no Teen Wolf. There you go. No Danny, mm-hmm. no Teen Wolf. You heard it here, mm-hmm. folks. Save the Danny, save the Teen Wolf. <laughs> That's a callback. It is. Scott is shocked to learn that Peter is the alpha, and even more shocked that Derek has forgiven him for killing Lara, or at least enough to let Peter be his alpha. Derek says that although they want the people responsible for the fire to be punished, they don't want to punish those who weren't involved, like Allison, who is very fire adjacent. (laughs) She's adjacent. And this is also the scene where Peter is sort of expressing bewilderment that lacrosse is so popular in Beacon Hills and saying that back in his day, it was basketball. Yeah, it's a callback to the original film where Michael J. Fox's Scott is a basketball star. Once he becomes a teen wolf, whenever he's human, he's not that great at the game. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, It's very accurate. There's also some foreshadowing here for something that happens later on the show. And Peter is still rocking that leather duster. I don't know if The Crow is his favorite film. I love The Crow. I mean, it's great. It's fantastic. I'm not saying it's bad in any way, but maybe they just, that was the only VHS they had at the <laughs> at the catatonic folks home and oh, um, they just put it in and just kept it going it was on loop and when he came out of that coma he was like brendan lee is my hero where can i get that duster he totally been <laughs> rocking the makeup too though yeah <laughs> scott you're the one that said all the hills probably deserve to die in that house fire and never apologized as far as we know and now you're like oh my god derek you can't be on peter's side i know he's almost outraged on derek's behalf too like I can't believe that he would even try to get you on his side after what he did to you and your sister. Like, did he really not expect Derek to side with Peter? I mean, Peter sucks, but he's been killing the people that set the fire while Scott's over here being like, oh, Derek, those children probably deserve to burn alive. Bye, Derek. Also, being a werewolf is a curse and I hate it. Exactly. Which I feel like, okay, I understand why in the beginning he was so frustrated with Derek trying to convince him that being a werewolf is actually a good thing. But then at this point, I feel like he has enough context to where he shouldn't be frustrated about that anymore because it should be like, okay, I get it. He doesn't know what it feels like to be human or to be bitten against his will or anything like that. All he's thinking about is that his family was killed basically in a hate crime because people hate werewolves. And then, you know, Scott's over here being like, this has ruined my life. Being a werewolf is the worst thing ever. And it was a little bit like triggering to him. Just a little. And so, yeah, then like it turns out that Peter's alive and the people that he killed were responsible for literally setting children on fire. And he's like, oh my God, Derek, I can't believe you would even listen to that for one second. Like, come on, Scott, let's, let's not. Peter apparently agrees with us and feels like Scott is clearly not employing any empathy toward the Hales. And so as he tends to do, decides he's going to force him. And he sinks his claws into the back of Scott's neck, sharing his memories, which is 
essentially what Derek did to Jackson unintentionally in Derek's case. But Peter knows that by putting his claws in the back of Scott's neck, he can share memories with Scott and Scott will experience them and know what it felt like at that time. So he shares memories of the fire that way with Scott. Speaking of sharing memories, at the end of the episode, Jackson tells Derek that he's been having dreams about this fire, which implies that Derek gave him some memories, but Derek wasn't there. No, he wasn't. So he gave him- That has occurred to me before. So he gave him his nightmares or like the impression of the fire. I don't think it's implausible- that Derek saw the house burn from the outside. Okay, all right. Too loud. But yeah, in in this episode, Jackson doesn't say that he saw the house burning. He says, I've been inside this house. I remember, you know, I remember these walls. I remember this staircase, which actually would be easier having seen it when it was fully furnished and not an ashen shadow of its former self. All right, I like that. So Derek kind of injected him with some memories of better times. Pre-fire Hale House. Yeah. He definitely cool. didn't mean to though. And you can tell oh, yeah. when we get to that scene that Derek is really thrown by that comment. He doesn't have a ton of confidence going into whatever's happening. I still feel like it might have just been a weird plan. I don't know. But his confrontation with Jackson, he has some confidence, but then that completely throws him for a loop whenever mm-hmm. he yeah. finds out. It's great. Yeah. I, I think he's probably really kind of overcome by the idea of someone else even having memories of this house or of his family because that's the thing about it having been such a massacre is that especially with Laura gone as far as he knew Peter was the only person in existence who shared any of these memories with him and I, I think it would be really hard to cut someone out of your life entirely because you know most people when they deal with grief like it helps to share it with someone you know yeah it, that's why we have funerals it helps to have someone else around who also is grieving the same things and knew that person and yeah. Derek doesn't have that except for Peter but then in, in the scene in the Hale house with Jackson you find out that through this sort of magical werewolf process, Jackson now has some of those too. And that would be very disorienting, I I, I think, for someone who's still coming to terms with being almost the only person with those memories and those experiences. Absolutely. Do you think it would have made any difference? Not that Scott would have wanted to go like, you know, help Peter kill people, but do you think he would have been more sympathetic to Derek and what he had to say about the Argents if he'd gotten those memories earlier after he was turned? That's a very interesting question, and it's especially interesting when you consider that that happened in On Fire. Not just seeing the memories, but feeling the emotions associated with those memories. So at least from Nancy Holder's perspective, the answer is no, that did not make a difference. (laughs) But if we're sticking purely to the show, it is kind of interesting to speculate because that's sort of the thing about sharing memories. It's kind of trying to force empathy, right? Like I said, and it is interesting to consider whether forcing empathy on Scott would have changed the outcome. Yeah. And particularly if it would have changed the outcome, if For example, he had a vision of Derek finding the ring in the ashes, Mm -hmm. which made it clear that it wasn't just Derek's best guess that at least one Argent was involved. It, It was a conclusion based on evidence. 
Yeah. Because the first thing that Scott says in Magic Bullet when Derek tells him that the Argents were responsible for the fire is, how do you know that? Yeah. And Derek says, well, because they were the only ones who knew about us. And then Scott's next attempt to avoid (laughs) the cognitive dissonance is to say, well, then they must have had a reason. So I do wonder whether feeling those feelings combined with seeing that Derek's conclusion about who caused the fire was based on evidence and not on a gut feeling, whether that would have made a difference. I don't know. Because the thing is, it feels like it should, but Scott isn't able to think rationally about the Argents. You know, we've talked about this before. He has a blind spot around Allison. And that includes her family because he doesn't want to have to conclude that the Argents are bad. Allison is an Argent, therefore Allison is bad. Yeah. So instead of just separating her from her family who very well could be responsible for this tragedy, he instead avoids this just by saying they must have had a good reason. End of discussion. Yeah. And that's really not something you should say to the sole survivor of a massacre. Or any victim of anything. But here we are. (laughs) But here we are. I think it's interesting that Scott does have such a position that Allison can't be good if they're bad, like that they're all like one unit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because, I mean, he doesn't, at least as far as we see in the first season, he doesn't have a close relationship with his father. And there's definitely some history there where his father's not a great guy Mm -hmm. and I feel like he wouldn't want to be defined by his father's actions so I don't understand why Allison can't just be separate from the rest of the Argents. Allison has dreams about Scott. I feel like she must be a big fan of the original Spider-Man films because that is very nearly a Spider-Man kiss that happens. (laughs) There's some Spider-Man kissing happening here. Allison then wakes up and realizes her necklace is missing. She later overhears Chris and Kate having an argument. Kate thinks Chris should start sharing his skills with his daughter, and Chris says it's too soon. Kate leaves an unusual arrowhead for Allison to find. Because she's sneaky. Manipulative. Yeah. She's very gleeful whenever they show Allison, like, examining it. Then they cut to Kate watching. Uh, Oh, yeah. Yeah. Gleeful is a great word for it. Kate and Peter are just the same. Like everything they do is designed for drama and atmosphere Mm -hmm. and all that. And manipulation. And manipulation. So that's exactly what it is. Kate and Peter are the two sides of the same coin. They're soulmates. Who hate each other. The best kind of soulmates. That would. And it'd be, it'd be like the Buffy and Spike episode where they like literally bring down a house around them. Oh my God. With all the destruction. With Kate and Peter, it would be like, I can't tell if they're trying to kill each other or just each other. It's really hard to tell. It's possibly both. Possibly. Something physical and intense is happening. I just don't know if it's sex or murder. Allison takes Lydia on a hike in the woods and reveals two things. First, that Jackson asked her to the winter formal as a friend. And second, that she knows Lydia betrayed her by making out with Scott when she knows that Allison still has feelings for him. Who do you think told Allison that Lydia and Scott made out? I think it was Jackson because the only people that had known about it, that it was previously established that they knew about it was obviously Lydia and Scott. Lydia and Scott certainly didn't tell her. And then Jackson and Styles. Styles, while he was very angry, it didn't seem like 
he was more of the be upfront about how angry he was as opposed to sneakily manipulating the sequence of events to make sure that Allison hated him. You know, it just doesn't feel like something he would do. Whereas I could see Jackson, who also found out about it, telling Allison as sort of a manipulative tactic because he's been trying to get closer to Allison, gain her trust, drive a wedge between her and Scott, and also to get back at Lydia a little bit for kissing Scott when they were still together. So I feel like it had to have been Jackson, but regardless, I would have really liked to see her finding out that feels like something we should have seen on screen. Right. Yeah. I do think Teen Wolf occasionally has a problem with important conversations or revelations happening off screen where it's like, why didn't I see this? This is really important to these characters. Why would this have happened out of frame? When Jackson's car breaks down, Chris offers to help and uses the opportunity to get a closer look at the scratches on Jackson's neck. Scott and Stiles join them and offer Jackson a ride, giving Chris a moment to remove a device that he had planted on Jackson's car and claim he's fixed it. Poor Russell's car, by the way. They are driving the hell out of it. And I can just imagine Russell sitting behind the monitors as they're directing. He's just like biting his nails, you know, like an old Looney Tunes <laughs> typewriter or whatever, just because that car is just going all over the place and driving it so hard. It's like, what if it crashes? You know? I so, felt like you stole it or that you borrowed it from a really rich director who can probably just buy another Porsche. There you go. I feel like in this scene, when Chris is asking Jackson what happened to his neck, he should have just been like, dude, have you seen Lydia's nails? Done. Explanation given and probably believed because like, come on, I would believe that. That feels perfectly logical to me. Makes complete sense to me. Like, Yeah, my my girlfriend digs in. She knows what she likes. She got to hold on. (laughs) She got to hold on. At that point, you know, they turn around and are just, just already driving away. Right. <laughs> <laughs> nope, I'm exiting this conversation and I'm finished. They're just like, oh, I thought you'd want to hear about this. That was the impression I got looking at your popped collar on your peacoat. <laughs> I do love a man in a peacoat. Don't get me wrong. Josh Jacks rocked the peacoats on Fringe. But oh, yeah, he did. with the popped collar, Chris, you look like a douche. I'm telling you, this is a friend. Looks like he wants to shut down like a ski school or something. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, our 13-year-old listeners are not going to understand that reference at all. No, they won't. Scott once again tries to impress upon Jackson the downside of being a werewolf, but Jackson insists that those are Scott's problems and that he could handle the power better. Scott fears that Jackson will put himself in danger and Scott won't be able to protect him, just as he fears he'll be unable to protect Styles. Oh, now he's concerned about Styles. (laughs) Oh, <laughs> <laughs> rough, but accurate. And Scott's over here just like punching the Jeep. Yes. Why isn't he punching uh, Jackson's car? He's mad at Jackson. Punch Jackson's or, car. Or, or Jackson. He's, he's right there. Or his face. I do like, <laughs> oh. though, I, I, I will say, I mean, Jackson's the worst, just the worst. But whenever Scott's like, you don't get it and all this, and Jackson's like, I could handle it better. I kind of believe him. a little bit like I think he would mess up a lot but I feel like he would do it a little bit better granted granted he is coming at this with knowledge and Scott was just bitten and thrown out into the world as a new werewolf but Jackson 
He wasn't because Derek tried to help his ass. Okay, wait, you, you didn't let me finish. He was just thrown out into the world for about 24 hours before Derek <laughs> then tried to help him at every moment he could. But even without all that, and Jackson's like, those are your problems. I'm like, shit, he's kind of right. Wrong. Yeah. Also, I I just think it's really funny that he, he says that whole like metaphor about, well, simile, I guess, that Scott, it's basically like someone handed you the keys to some really fast sports car and you weren't ready. They need to give you a little Honda. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like he's like, I was born a Porsche. That just yes. feels like I am the Porsche of humans. Yes. Out in the woods, Allison hears a strange sound and leaves her bow with Lydia while she investigates. She comes upon Scott, who startles her so much that she shoots him with her taser. Scott returns her necklace saying he'd found it at school. Allison rewards him with a very sweet hug. It is a really sweet hug. So sweet that you almost forget that she tased him like 30 seconds ago. Yes, Scott definitely forgets. (laughs) He he absolutely, (laughs) you can see the moment that he's forgotten and it's almost instantaneous. Poor little Scott. Stiles finds his father working late and gets him some whiskey so that he'll be tipsy enough to give Stiles some information. So the sheriff shares that the murder victims were all in some way connected to the hail fire. The bus driver was the insurance investigator assigned to the hail fire, who was then terminated under suspicion of fraud. The two guys in the woods had criminal records for, you guessed it, arson. And that's not all. In the same time frame, Animal attacks went up 70%. Now, Sheriff Stolinski can't figure out why Derek would kill his sister before killing people responsible for the fire, or why he'd try to make it look like an animal attack. Stiles also learns that the police can't get a good mugshot of Derek because his eyes always seem to cause lens flares. I feel like it goes back to that shot that we had in the tell of Scott looking out at the cars passing by and it sort of looks like the light is catching the tapita lucida on his irises yeah I, I i like that this is sort of a more extreme version of that kind of yeah. like you know that when you take a picture of your dog at the right angle you get those glowy eyes and yeah i, I like the idea that it's the same with werewolves but more a more extreme version yeah it's another great addition i feel like to werewolf mythology that team oh, yeah. did that we didn't that we don't see you know i feel like with so many like vampire shows they just go for the standards but except for a lot of times they'll just ditch sunlight because it's too annoying to do on the yeah. show but the rest I, I don't feel like there's a lot of like fresh takes on anything that mm-hmm. i've seen from more recent shows when it comes to like classic monsters like vampires and werewolves except for Teen Wolf did a really incredible job with that. Teen Wolf had some really fascinating innovations for the werewolf myth that that's for sure. I I love the claws in the back of the neck. It's fantastic. It is so interesting and it's so rife with possibilities from a writing perspective. Yeah. We see it in season one obviously with with Jackson with Scott in this episode and we see it I think developed even more so over time well that's definitely how Jeff would always he would always ask what's the teen wolf spin on this thing like when we were talking about new mythologies or new monsters and things like that he was like but what do we do different what's our spin on this legend how can we make it just not the same thing you know that we've seen over and over again and I think a lot of that had to do with choosing monsters that we haven't seen before like I had never heard of a canva until I had worked on this show it definitely seems like when we're learning all this backstory about the hailfire that Kate outsourced a lot of work right lazy honestly I don't feel like 
she did it because she needed the help. I feel like she just did it because she likes dragging people into her messes and she wants to make their hands as bloody as hers. I think it's a fun game of corruption for her. And that's why she's so excited for Allison to become involved because she wants to make like a mini version of her. Yeah. She wants to see Allison kill people. Yeah. Kill werewolves. And I feel like that's why she got so many people involved just because she wanted to see if she could. Like how many people can I drag into a murder before? Easily. Easily. How easy is it to get people to do this? Like we don't know like how many people she might've like asked to or like hinted at it who like shot her down of like no I'm not gonna tell you how to cause like a fire or no I wouldn't be willing to like help write off an insurance fraud or whatever he the bus driver was an insurance adjuster so so he was sort of the the way I took it was that he would you know investigate insurance claims to ensure that they could tell whether it was accidental or okay I feel like that's just a mistake Because I feel like what they really meant was like, it should have been like someone from the fire department because Mm -hmm. no one was surviving unless Laura, who was underage, it seems like at the, well, Teen Wolf Ages, blah. (laughs) Maybe Laura and Derek got the money, but did they? We don't know. Peter didn't. Peter certainly didn't. I don't know if they would have gotten the money. Like having an insurance adjuster would have to mean that someone was filing the claim. As far as we know, they left town shortly after. Mm-hmm. And it, it just seems like that would be like the very last step of something that she'd need. She'd need more like the fire department to sign I, off may, on it. Maybe I think everything you're saying is completely correct. Is the term, because I was like, like you need an insurance investigator or something, but I feel like maybe adjuster is the correct term, but maybe they do more. I than- mean, but the thing is they'd, it would have to be if someone's filing a claim. It's, yeah. it's not something that would happen like spontaneously. Right. It's yeah. not like, because insurance, they don't go out of their way to be like, oh, we heard this horrible thing happen to you. Let us give you money if it qualifies. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. This is a lot of moving parts for Kate. And then it's a lot of, it's a lot of liability out there for Kate as well that she left so many witnesses alive to the crime she orchestrated when all she needed was to seduce a high schooler and then buy a book of matches and fill up some gasoline well okay let me let me be the devil's advocate here and by devil's advocate I mean Kate's advocate um I'm going to make an argument in favor of it being planned that okay. these people were part of it. I agree with you, Calissa. I'm not sure about the insurance adjuster. Mm-hmm. I'm not totally sure how that fits it into the plan. Feels weird. But I will get into it for the other people, for the two, the, the toughs, as Will likes to say, <laughs> uh, and for Mr. Harris, whom the Alpha tries to kill, but is saved by Derek. First of all, I think Calissa kind of struck on this part of it I think Kate just really enjoys seeing whether she can convince someone to commit murder. And I feel like that goes back to our comparison between Kate and the Joker. If you think about the Joker in Dark Knight, the Joker could just kill people, Mm -hmm. but he gets this kind of special glee out of convincing what seem like normal ethical people to commit murder. Mm -hmm. Not because it necessarily is the best way to get whatever it is that he wants 
but because that's sort of his central thesis that anybody could be a murderer given the right push, right? Mm -hmm. That's what he says that mm -hmm. just, yeah. just need a little right. push. And Kate actually says something strikingly similar to that yes. in the scene where she follows Allison to the Hale house, mm -hmm. where she says, you don't have to be psychotic to be a killer. Mm -hmm. You just need a reason. And even then, sometimes you just need a little push in the right direction. It, it, it's not that exact wording, but it's a, it's a remarkably similar viewpoint to yeah. what the Joker says in The Dark Knight. And I feel like that could potentially be an explanation for why Kate would involve so many people. It's interesting, but I respectfully disagree. Also, I would like to know why Styles was so excited at the start of the scene. Like he rolls in, he has this big grin on his face. Is he really just that amused at himself for drinking milk right out of the carton? Is that what I, it was? Or was it like milk just... and be like, oh, dad got Sunny D. Oh, deep. This isn't 1993. They're not doing it. <laughs> um, How can I drink orange juice without actually getting any of the nutritional value of orange juice? None of I, <laughs> I feel like Styles just always knows how to like enter room, how to eat, how to do everything to just draw attention to himself. I feel like he that's just because flails his way through life, and I love it. It's because he was an only child. And he was the only person uh, he had to keep himself entertained. Entertained. So he does yeah. everything in an entertaining manner so he can laugh at himself. Scott gets a call from his teacher reminding him that he hasn't turned in his paper and he can only get a 48-hour extension. Allison comes over and starts to talk about her suspicions that her family is keeping secrets from her. But Melissa walks in to tell Scott that she's leaving for a date with a medical rep. But when her date shows up, Scott discovers she's going on a date with Peter Hale. Bum, bum. Bah. The dream of many Teen Wolf fans, apparently. There's a lot of Peter. A date with Mama McCall? Oh. Yeah. Well, but, well <laughs> yeah. But like, yeah. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of people out there who's really into Peter. Even taking the chance that he's mostly evil. Disagree. That's a disagree okay. from me. Peter could not get it. Melissa we, McCall could get it. I was about to say, Peter Hale mentioned could this not before, get it. But you know what the most unbelievable thing on Teen Wolf is? Is it the werewolves? No. Is it Wolfsbane bullets? Get out of here. Is it a woman coming up with a very convoluted plan to set a house on fire and then leaving all those liabilities floating around that could just come back and bite her in the ass one day? No, not that. It's that Melissa McCall is single. Okay, but... Horribly unbelievable. Okay. Horribly. I, I believe it, and this is the only reason why. She is the only competent or possibly <laughs> only working nurse in Beacon Hills. She practically lives at that hospital. So unless she's dating a patient or another doctor <laughs> or nurse, she is not going to get anyone she can, can spend any time with. I mean, they'd yep. be like, hey, Melissa, you know, I'm at the restaurant. I've been here for two hours. And she's like, sorry, I'm on my fifth, like, you know, weird, mysterious poison of the night. Yeah. I, I'm knee deep in blood and I cannot explain why. And black bile. And I, I don't get it. <laughs> mm -hmm. But like, you can mm -hmm. bring the takeout food here, but we're probably going to have to quarantine the town. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. So yeah. That's why. <laughs> is, is Melissa stunning? <laughs> yes. Is she perfect as a human being? Yes, but that bitch is busy. Listen to Peter, you know, he, he was like, uh, Scott, could you just calm down? Your mom's a babe. She's just a babe. And it's like, yeah, Peter doesn't have good intentions and he's evil, but in this narrow area, he is correct. 
you know? I feel like the only reason she also went out with Peter is because he just went there and like right away was like throwing himself at her, which oh, I yeah. understand a lot of people probably would, but like, again, they, most people that come in there are patients who are dying. So of something obscure and bizarre, right? Possibly contagious, who knows? Hard to but say. yeah, so I feel like that's the only reason she went on a date with him was because he was just like hardcore pushing it. Yeah, he just like, no, normally people are like, oh, I'll talk to her, get to know her. And then it's like, red alert. And it's like, well, she's gone. That conversation's over. Meanwhile, Peter just rolls up and is like, hey, you're gorgeous. Want to go to dinner? And she's like, oh, yeah. But there is another right. unbelievable thing that happens in this scene. And that is why the hell does Scott let Peter into the house? Is that where we're at? What? Oh, I was going to be like, teachers don't call their students. Oh, that, oh. Yeah. <laughs> that's not a thing. I know. I actually, yeah. When we watched it, I was like, is that, does that happen? Like this person left a voicemail on Scott's personal cell phone. Yeah. Like, I mean, granted, when I was in high school, cell phones were about 30 years away, but <laughs> moving on. Yes. Why does he let him into the house? Yeah. I feel like he should have tried like anything. Like, like he's a werewolf. He could heal, like throw himself down the stairs and be like, oh my God, mom, I just broke my leg or uh, my legs hurt. <laughs> and you know what? There were even things he could have said that were totally factual. Like Peter comes up in here and, and like is talking about you know, do you know about the Second World War and stuff? I'd be like, Mom, this guy just compared himself to Nazi Germany. Mom, this is like Derek Hale's uncle. And, you know, Derek is a wanted murderer. I don't know if you should go on a date with him. Mom, extra clarification. You were implicitly Poland in this discussion. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, I don't know. I just feel like he could have said like a lot of stuff. Mom, I think Allison might be pregnant. Ah! <laughs> that would be a good one but yeah I just don't understand why he waits until like Melissa's already out of the house to come up with a plan I know he's probably shocked but dude think quick like yeah. your mama's getting in the car with a murderer a noted alpha. murderer his think quick skills haven't developed very well yet he is not like amazing in a crisis yeah yet unfortunately hopefully he gets better at that yeah only time will tell only time will tell Derek finds Jackson and tells him that he's going to give him what he wants yeah in in the scene Derek like picks up Jackson's iPod I guess and says oh (laughs) says like oh I like your taste in music I haven't heard this one in a long time and then it plays Dead Man's Bones the song Lose Your Soul and I was like that song's like two years old Derek, calm down. Okay, but I was shocked to find out that this was Ryan Gosling's band. Also, that they referred oh. to him as Baby Goose. Yeah, <laughs> that's a. It's a, they just have the one album, but it's a good album. And there's a song called Werewolf Heart on it. There is a song called Werewolf Heart. Wolfies, I I recommend that you check out this album. Derek does great werewolf recruitment speeches. This is just like the first one I feel like we hear because. You know, he doesn't, he wasn't the one who recruited Scott. Scott was already bitten. He tried to convince him being a werewolf was good, but Scott, you know, mm-hmm. was already on the hater side. But, you know, <laughs> uh, I feel like Derek gives great speeches. They're not all sincere. And like, I feel like that's what he actually believes. But, you know, 
a forever. Well, the, the, the interesting thing is, I feel like what he said to Scott, he did believe. Yes, and that didn't work. So and that he didn't work. decided to switch up tactics. Right. Of like, and so, I'm going to tell them what they want to hear. You know, we talked about like werewolves and like, you know, communication, like how blunt they are. And like, maybe they don't really understand like small talk and stuff like that. Or That's they my headcanon, like yeah. Yeah, your headcanon. But mm-hmm. I, I feel like there is evidence that like they're really blunt and to the point. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it makes a lot of sense why you said like, you know, they can tell a lie and everything. So why wouldn't they be? Mm-hmm. So you think that they wouldn't be very like, a student like picking up things about like this is what this person like needs to hear and I mm-hmm. can just like easily tell this lie to them but because yeah, that's sort of well. some subtle interpersonal right. stuff yeah yeah but yeah I he's feel really good like like I said that what he said to Scott about you know we're brothers now the bite is a gift I think those things he sincerely believed and it didn't work I also think his his facial expression is very different when he's trying to recruit Jackson versus when he's trying to recruit recruit Scott. And I think you can see that when he's trying to, I mean, recruit, you know, is quote unquote, because Scott was already bitten, he didn't have a choice in the matter, but Derek was trying to convince him that it wasn't go- it wasn't the end of his life. Yeah. And when he's talking to Scott, he's very solemn. When he's talking to Jackson, he's smiling and it is not a nice smile. Because it's a lie. Because it's a lie, yeah. And to me... I feel like that's his Kate Argent face. Uh, that is rough. Accurate. But 100%. But yeah. Accurate. I feel like his mind doesn't work the same way as hers. He's not just like, oh, I'm going to do this because it's going to be fun. He sees this as like, this is a means to an end. Yeah. Whatever a, his yeah. plan is with Jackson, it's like, I have to convince him to come with me. Here's how I'm going to do it. In context, if you know more about that character and you see how he normally looks and how he normally communicates, I find it unsettling. I think it's because it's not a smile. I think it's because it's a grin. Yeah. And it's like it's like the type of it's the type of grin like you share with someone when you've got like an inside joke or that type of thing or something that just really makes you laugh. And this isn't a, a moment that really makes you laugh, but he's right. putting, because he doesn't smile. He's not a smiler. No. You know, so he goes straight to Joker. Yeah. I mean, he goes which, straight to the man who laughed. And what, or, and like, we, were we not just talking about which Teen Wolf character is most Joker like? If Derek had like kind of almost been like molded into another version of Kate, like it seems like she wants to do with Allison, I feel like that would have been absolutely terrifying to see. Derek Hale be that kind of villain. I feel like groomed is the word you're looking for. Yeah. Yes, that is true. But the light at the end of of the tunnel of that is that she did not succeed. Like, I think he he pulls those tools out of the toolbox sometimes. Mm -hmm. But I really think that deep down, he is trying to do what he thinks is best for others. And luckily... Luckily, with many quotes around it, Wolfies, but luckily, Kate only saw Derek as a means to an end and not a protege. But we talked about this before that like when she realizes that Derek isn't dead, it's not like she's like, well, time to clean up that loose end and go kill Derek and finish off the pack. I feel like her reaction was probably just like, oh, interesting. See where this goes. Yeah. I I mean, I feel like it's almost like the way she caresses the wood of the house. Like she's like admiring her work when she looks Mm -hmm. at Derek. Yeah. Jackson follows Derek. As they leave the school, we see Kate spying on them. Why was she there? 
she was trolling for teenage boys and happened upon this i believe it's just a normal saturday night for her oh my god that's probably accurate does it make any kind of sense i mean it kind of does to me because i believe that since the incident with chris failing she was the one taking over trying to spy on jackson to figure out if he was the second beta then she you know was stalking him at the school and then's like Derek showed up. She's like, yeah, he is the second beta, isn't he? Oh, was she there to try and seduce him? Is that is that what was is that what was gonna happen? So yeah. I wonder if she overheard parts of that conversation, was like, wait, that's like a recruitment speech, yeah. which means he can't possibly already be a werewolf. Yeah. yeah. But she probably was there still like to yeah, figure yeah, out yeah. if he was. No, yeah, yeah. I, I I think you're right. Meanwhile, Peter and Melissa are in the car together, headed toward their date when Melissa realizes that Peter might have missed the turn for the restaurant. She hasn't been dating for a while. The smart thing to do nowadays is meet the guy at the restaurant in your own car so that you can yep. leave. But and if make you, sure you get there in one piece. to get a ride with the guy, you pull up the directions on your phone right away so you know immediately if he misses a turn and so you can ping your location and this person's full name and the last word of their social to someone close to you at the touch of a button in case, you know, you end up on someone's true crime podcast. Mm-hmm. That's how you do it, Wolfies. Peter is an inappropriate toucher. Like he, he, I, he's one of those people that believes like what he's doing is like sweet and romantic acceptable Except- but it is not, yeah yeah but it is not at all does it remind you of anyone else on the show yes our lady of the bad touch yes with her relatives yes. yeah peter doesn't have that as much or at all yeah. i feel like he would never like do the whole tiptoe fingers along your shoulder thing to derek because derek would rip that arm off yes he would yes but derek his- does not like to be touched that is established early on in this scene peter does get into some inappropriate touching and it's interesting when it shows melissa's face because i feel like you can see that she's like okay something doesn't feel right here but she's also not throwing herself bodily out of the car. I feel like she can feel that there's something weird happening, but she's second guessing herself a little bit. Like, mm-hmm. is it weird or am I just out of practice on like, yeah. you know, the 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 give and take of like nonverbal cues? Yeah. You know, yeah. There, there's that element of like, am I just reading too much into it or is this actually creepy as And we as, as the audience have more information than she does. Yeah. But we're also just like, that's creepy as throw yourself bodily out of the car yeah (laughs) panicked scott has styles rear end them with his jeep styles is such a ride or die friend i personally believe this was probably styles's idea not scott's i feel like scott probably just called him in a panic being like oh my god you have to say melissa you got it that's that's (laughs) possible i don't think that styles plan a would be something that damages his jeep because we do see him be very protective of his jeep yeah but melissa's like a mother to him yeah as we mm. see later and on so i feel like he would do it for her i'm not thinking be unwilling i just thought that if if it were up to him that he would have come up with a different plan a that's all i think styles is only upset when other people hurt his car oh interesting because like i don't think we've ever I, not yet i don't think we ever will see him like wreck his car and be like oh man it's always when someone else does something to his car. So I feel like it's one of those things where it's like, I can do whatever I want to my stuff, but don't you dare mess up my stuff. You know, that type of thing. So mm-hmm. 
Did yeah, I, I see that? It ever become like canon, or is it just Bannon that it was his mother's Jeep? I think that's Bannon. Yeah, I don't remember that being. I couldn't remember show. honestly. <laughs> yeah, it's like that. I mean, we don't ever. We're never told that the Camaro is. That the Camaro belongs to anyone but Derek, but it is my personal headcanon that it's Laura's car. Yeah. Styles tells Melissa that, you know, they came out of nowhere and she said, oh, we were parked. But, you know, in Styles' defense, they kind of just parked on the side of the road amongst other cars. It's a very narrow street. The other side has, was like, had parked vehicles. I mean, they didn't leave a lot of room. Yeah. You well, see someone hitting them. There was a lot of room when they parked on that empty street. <laughs> and then <laughs> when they needed it, there was a traffic jam. So, because yeah. you do see the car, they're driving down like a desolate county road. <laughs> Honestly, <know? laughs> I, I, I don't even think the, the believability of it matters because as soon as Melissa gets out of the car and sees that it's Styles, she is livid. Yeah. It wouldn't she matter if. Like if she, if they had straight up pulled out into the middle of the road, I don't think it would have mattered. She's just like seeing red. <laughs> and I, I actually really like just her, how angry she is in this scene. Cause it, it feels very real, yeah. you know, that she is a very like sweet, wonderful, supportive person, but like, it definitely feels like one of those moments where it's like, I wanted one dinner to my damn self. <laughs> And this shit happens. And of course it styles. I feel like she's this close to slapping Styles' face. To just yeah. being like, you about to get a slap. I feel like she probably did full on slap him if she ever saw him wearing the uh, support single mother shirt. If she oh if he ever wore that around her, she would have slapped him. In fact, maybe that's why we only see him wear it once. Yeah. She slaps him. He says, what was that for? She says, you know what that's for. And he's like, <laughs> oh shit, I do. I do actually, yeah. Yeah, I do. Nice. And yeah. then he donates the shirt. Then he goes and buys a dick nose shirt. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like she just rolled her eyes at that one though. Yeah, that, that's like, that's, that's yeah. not personal, but you come in here with an I support single mom shirt, you get in a slap. Yeah. Impressed with Scott's intervention, Peter explains that he thought it'd be easier to get Scott into his pack if Melissa were a werewolf, too. Additionally, he implies that Derek is going to take care of the Jackson problem. Yeah, why is he telling Scott this? I think it's part of a plan. I mean, I don't think the audience knows the plan, but it feels like there must be one because it all feels like a big setup. Yeah, it like, does kind of. Yeah, it, it's from- just kind of hard to parse what the because it, it it's kind of a non sequitur right he's like yeah oh, Scott I'm I'm surprised and impressed also Derek's gonna kill Jackson just I let think me know that was the plan I think the plan was to go out on a date with Scott drawing so that's why it should have happened why are Peter showing up Scott yes. be like I'll go on a date with you instead that's a hot take I think the plan was for Peter to go on a date with Melissa therefore drawing Scott's attention away from anything else that might have been going on. But then and why would he bring it up to Scott? I think that was an accident. This well, is not good headcanon. I think it, it or an accident. I, I feel accidentally like, do yeah, I know. No, I, I think Peter couldn't keep it to himself type of thing because there's no reason for him to mention this at all. Well, it is if that's part of the plan. I feel like he was never going to turn Melissa I know we see like it looks like he might fight her or something, but I don't, I think he always expected Scott to intervene somehow. And then he was going to tell Mm -hmm. him about 
Jackson. I mean, I, it's a very convoluted, and I don't know what the end of it was, but I never, I don't feel like Derek was ever going to kill Jackson. And I don't understand why they would. I mean, if they felt like Jackson was a problem, I feel like just for one thing, turn him. Like, I don't know why he, like, he wouldn't just, he needs a pack. They always say, like, as the show goes on, that the more betas they have, the stronger it makes an alpha. I don't mm-hmm. feel like Peter would even care who his betas were. That is established in the first season because Derek says, when Derek is talking to Scott about like the difference between an alpha and a beta, he says, you know, alphas are stronger than betas, but an alpha that doesn't have any betas isn't as strong as it could be. And that's why I think I have a chance to go after the alpha. If, if this were an alpha with a pack, it would probably be impossible for me to take on the alpha, but because this one clearly doesn't have a pack, I might have a shot. So that is discussed in this season already. That is established. Yeah. So I feel like he wouldn't really care. He has like a willing teenager to bite, just bite him. And then he'd have someone else who would be beta to him while Jackson's very self-involved he would want to do it the right way in terms of like learning things Mm -hmm. to be in control so I don't feel like he would just ditch Peter immediately yeah because they I mean they do say that in addition to being obsessed with being the best at lacrosse Jackson is also obsessed with getting great grades as well so I could absolutely see him seeing this as like I need to be the best beta that I can be I need to learn everything there is to know about being a werewolf and be the the best bitten wolf that's ever been bitten wolfed. (laughs) Now that I'm thinking about it, like really putting my my brain muscles to work. They hurt. They do. (laughs) What was the plan? There was like, that's what we're trying to do. So, okay. So, so Derek gets Jackson and takes him to the house with the purpose, maybe of killing him. But this plan is horribly convoluted. Yes, and it like, is. Yes. yes, correct. Even like the straightforward, but okay, he was, Peter was going to bite Melissa during the date and Derek, Derek was going to kill Jackson. It's still a weird, weird plan. Right, because yeah. to your point, why not just turn Jackson? And if Jackson's like not working out as a beta, he, he could always kill him, kill him then. Yeah. But like, yeah. yeah, why not see if he can keep Jackson in line? Because if he can't, He'll just kill Jackson. But if he can, having a beta makes him stronger. We've established this already. Peter clearly fancies himself as like a Machiavellian schemer. Right. So it's like, yeah. why he would, would never... he just yeah. kill? I mean, I, I could see Derek wanting to kill Jackson to keep him from spilling the secret because Derek has demonstrated throughout the first season that he's terrified of the idea of people finding out about werewolves. And that is an understandable perspective for him to have. But Peter, while Peter has also suffered the consequences of people finding out about him being a werewolf, he's different because he cares more about number one. He doesn't care about like, I don't give a if a bunch of other werewolves get slaughtered. I just want to know what's good for me. And that's not Derek's perspective. So I could buy Derek deciding to kill Jackson because he thinks that's going to have a net positive result of saving more people. Yeah. Because I think that's how Derek thinks is like, if I have to kill one person to save 20, you do it. Peter yeah. is not that person. And I just, I agree with you, Calissa. I feel like 
if you actually think about it for a second, it makes so much more sense that Peter would be like, well, I'm going to bite Jackson. If he's a good beta, dope. Now I have more betas and I'm more powerful as an alpha. If he sucks as a beta, I'll kill him and start over. Either way, that seems like the best way to get what he wants. Yeah. But it's clearly not something because Peter does give this information to Scott. So it's, it's clearly not something where like Derek has decided this is the best thing to do and not Peter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is clearly something they've discussed. It, it, it just is a little bit confusing on what their plan is because all other things being equal, it seems like it makes more sense to turn Jackson. But then if the plan is not straightforward to kill him because it makes more sense to turn Jackson, is the plan to send Scott there to try to stop Derek so that they can leverage Jackson's life to try to blackmail Scott into being part of the that doesn't work I think the I, I feel like it's it's what y'all said originally where it's just the, the, I think the simplest thing is Peter was gonna bite Melissa he believes that will make Scott more pliable mm-hmm. and then at the same time Derek's just gonna kill Jackson see but I don't believe that because I feel like for one thing if he really wanted to bite Melissa he would have done so like he he would have been well like, he was okay. kind of doing it and then the well but he had already haunted scott about it so like if he really wanted to bite melissa he could have done it without scott knowing he was even going to do it yeah i I, like he didn't need to show up to the house and be like i'm gonna take your mom out scott what are you gonna do about it well even even if he did though he didn't have to say the thing to scott about like oh i just figured you'd be more on board if your mom was a werewolf like why didn't he just leave it at your mom's a babe (laughs) I feel like he wanted to see what Scott would do because he knew he knew Scott wouldn't just let him bite his mom. Mm-hmm. I think he wanted to see what he was going to do. And then from there, I think it was some weird thing about like telling them they were going to kill Jackson. And then, yeah, they were going to like leverage Jackson. It, as, it doesn't really. I mean, it doesn't yeah. make sense, but I feel like if he wanted to just bite her to really like convince Scott that well, your mom's already part of my pack. You have to be part of my pack. He would have just done it. He wouldn't have shown up to the house, played games with Scott, and then taken her out. I I, I feel like the show's intention is for it to be what it says on the tin. The problem is if you think about it too long, it's like, that's not a good plan. Yeah. (laughs) Derek takes Jackson to the Hale house. And yeah, I guess to lure Jackson there to kill him, thus making Scott a part of Peter's pack i really i mean i'm shocked that jackson's gonna buy into derek being like yeah just go inside the house it's totally fine i'm right behind you and you're definitely (laughs) gonna get what you want i've got candy in my van climb in (laughs) my god we all float here (laughs) oh my god this is getting darker and darker (laughs) i feel like it said that he's gonna take him into the house and kill him will (laughs) it's dark murder murder's fine I I get what what's that Brita line? Uh, I draw the I can, line at. I can excuse murder, but I draw the line at referencing Stephen King novels. No, I completely buy that he would go along with this because he's a compulsive narcissist and he only looks out for number one. And I do think that kind of makes him dumb because he wants something so badly that any chance he can to get it, he's gonna take. And if someone's like, "Let's go to my place and I'll I'll bite you," he's like, "Yep." See, I I've. I felt like watching this part where, when he gets to the door of the Hill House, 
he seems like he's freaking out a little bit. Like oh, he looks, I he looks back at Derek. There's panic on his face. Derek's like, no, totally. You will be safe. Go inside in a super believable manner. And I feel like you can see on Jackson's face that he doesn't really buy it. I kind of just took it that like when they were leaving the school, he thought this is plausible. He's going to make me a werewolf. Mm -hmm. By the time they get to the Hale house, he knows that that is probably not what's happening. But I feel like he doesn't know, like, how does he get out of that situation? Start yeah. running? That That's like, he, he's probably thinking, you know, I've always heard that if you're faced with a predator in the wild, you should not just take off running because then yeah. they'll be like, pray, pray, pray and chase after you. Yeah. So I think I, I kind of felt like he was freaking out, but also thinking to himself, like, what are my options here? Running is not going to work. Yeah. Hiding is not going to work. So I think in that moment, he decides negotiation on as his plan going forward. Yeah, I love this scene very, very much because Jackson is a, a smug SOB. He's a smug SOB who, as Melissa said in a previous episode, doesn't hear the word no very often. But that leads to problems because he easily buys into getting something that he wants. And Derek's like, we're going to go somewhere and I'm going to give you the thing you want most. And then Jackson's like, yep, it's my time. But then it slowly starts to dawn on him that that's not what this is. And I just love- a terrible mistake. He's made a horrible mistake. And I just love all of the raw emotion that Colton is putting into it, mm -hmm. where it's, I mean, this is the thing, like, because we get variations of this in lots of stories where it's the bully gets their comeuppance. And I feel like in this one, it's a lot, it's going to be more final where it's like, you, you, you wanted a thing that is dangerous. You wanted a thing that comes with violence. You wanted a thing that makes monsters. And this is the result that you got yourself in bed with violent monsters and violent monsters kill people. And you're the person who's going to die now, you know, and I just love that scene. I just love all the realness from the emotions he's giving and just his Colton's performance is fantastic. But I also love that it's really, Derek is saying a lot of things and they're all true. You know, that he is like, no one's coming for you. That you, nobody cares about you. Nobody cares that you're good at lacrosse. Nobody cares that you have perfect hair or the perfect smile because you're not a good person. And this is what happens to people who aren't good, you know? And it's really sad. Like I feel like when I, we were rewatching this, this episode and this scene specifically, I felt really sad because again, you have to be like Jackson, there's his name, is a kid. You kind of forget that. He's like, oh, the actor is in his early 20s, you know, is an adult. And you have to remember that he's just like a 16 year old, 17 year old kid, you know, who got in way over his head. And uh, yeah, I really like it. I think it's just a fantastic scene. And I think both Colton and Tyler give great performances, but it also leads to another great bit. And that's when Derek's like, nobody cares that you're the captain of the lacrosse team. And then we hear this awesome voice go, go captain. Well, Derek doesn't just say that. He gives a whole little speech about like, no one cares that you have perfect hair. No one cares that, yeah, you're the captain of the lacrosse team. No one cares that you drive a nice car, like all this stuff. Yeah. And I, there's a lot of projecting going on here. You can tell like Derek isn't talking about Jackson anymore. He's talking about himself. And he says, you know, if anyone cared, they'd be here for you right now. And yeah, it turns out Scott is, but Derek doesn't have that. Derek knows he doesn't have anyone there for him. Yeah, Peter's back, but Peter isn't 
there for him. He doesn't care about Derek and Derek. And I don't think Derek, yeah, Derek has no illusions about that. I don't think. And he knows like Scott probably wouldn't do the same for him. If Peter was there to kill Derek, Scott probably wouldn't show up for him. Scott gets to the Hale house before Derek can do anything to Jackson. Derek threatens to kill both of them, but as Buff gets called when a group of hunters show up, guns blazing, and Derek yells for Scott and Jackson to run away while they can. So yeah, what do you guys think about that entrance from Scott? Uh, he's definitely <laughs> learned that from Derek. I mean, oh, that's, yeah. that's Derek. That's 101. That's classic Derek. The student becomes the master. Exactly. I feel like Derek was like, oh, you listen. Wait, why is that the one thing you took away from all the things I said to you? Right. Yeah. yeah. Make a dope-ass entrance. And Scott was like, yes. And that was the one thing that he actually implemented of all the very important lessons that Derek yeah. tried to impart to him. Hurt myself to come back from it and not get murdered? Ah, stupid. He Don't play this. in a lacrosse game because I might rip someone's head off that jump down a staircase because it looks cooler oh hell yeah i'm doing that one he jumps down the staircase and does the superhero land he goes i'm no one's pet derek's like that's never what i said (laughs) (laughs) you ruined it you should have kept your mouth shut so i could just be excited that you did the staircase thing i like how derek's like oh i'm gonna kill both of you and then he's immediately like cover your eyes scott as soon as you have to show up with flash bombs literally he doesn't take a breath in between those two things he says, I'm going to kill both of you. A bomb rolls in and then he's like, cover your eyes. And then immediately is like helping them out of the house. And then we mm-hmm. see it. He doesn't open the door and walk into bullets because he's not paying attention to what's going on around him. Like we see him hesitate before he opens the door and take a deep breath. Like, yep, I'm about to walk into a bunch of bullets because they need to have something to shoot at or they're going to catch these kids. About to walk into some bullets because some idiot only learned how to do a superhero landing. Of all the things I taught I mean, him, that was it. Derek I just feel like that is. <laughs> I just feel like that's so classic. Derek is he's like, mm-hmm. I'm not gonna coddle you. You're being a f-ing idiot. But when it comes down to it, I You'll will coddle him. I, when, it comes, <laughs> when it comes down to it, I will get riddled with bullets so that you don't. That's the bottom line. Scott wakes up at the vet clinic being treated by Deaton, who, as it turns out, only treats cats and dogs about 90% of the time. But 100% of the time, he does it enigmatically. (laughs) (laughs) He is a stoic gentleman. I imagine just like a cat owner being in there like, well, just tell me what the is wrong with my cat. I don't need all this like mysterious stuff. Go talk in code. Just tell me. (laughs) Why did what you just said rhyme? Why did it rhyme? I would like to see your vet school degree, sir. (laughs) Oh, it's interesting to me that Deaton says he gave Scott something that would help him heal faster. Do we ever hear about this again? The thing to heal faster? No. Something that you can give werewolves that speeds up their healing? He just said that to Scott to make him feel better. Uh, It's the placebo effect. It's called a wolf-sebo. It's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we are definitely uh, peeling back some layers on Deaton this season, it seems. The other layers are also enigmatic. (laughs) Kate offers Allison the answers she so badly wants, starting by bringing her into an interrogation of Derek. I guess that's one word for it. Yeah, I put it in quotation marks and tried to convey the quotation marks through my intonation. I, I, I don't know if it worked. There is no transition at all when it comes to the Argents changing their minds about who the beta is. You guys knows that? 
Yeah. I do feel like Kate might have made a good point that maybe she overheard some of the conversation with Jackson, but we don't oh, need any of that. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Okay. Kate C, not Kate A. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But still though, so let's take out, you know, it, it's still like they thought Styles was the beta at the end of For one a episode. Second. And yeah. then in the next episode, they never talked about it again. It's so frustrating. Yeah. And then they're like, what about Jackson? I'll say my headcanon was that she also stalked Styles and was like, nope, not him. Okay, let's try someone else. Because I feel like she definitely is a stalker who stalks. Do you guys feel like the only reason she didn't have a repeat of what happened with Derek is because Chris is in town? Yes. Yeah. I feel like she probably even, the reason she had condoms in her bag is because she was like, you never know when you might happen upon a vulnerable teenager. Oh my god! Uh, I feel like I mean it's it, it's horrible, but like this this is her character. It is. She is a sexual predator, and the fact that she even you know that at the end of this episode when they slide the door open and we see Derek in chains, and she says, "Isn't he beautiful?" It's really unsettling. Yes, yes I feel like Allison should have been like, "Um, Auntie Kate, <laughs> I need some context." For yep. what I'm seeing. Here. Correct. I, I I would have taken one step into that room, seen a, a person, I almost said human, I don't know if that's totally accurate, but a person, regardless, chained to a wall, and I would be like, no, the answer is no to that. I don't care how much I trusted that person. I don't trust anybody in this world enough to see a, a, a person chained to a wall and not require more information before I'm not freaking the out. Yeah. And the thing is, is like Kate's definitely the type of person where, you know, she's leading Allison down that corridor and she's like, you know, how every family has their secrets and she slides the door open dramatically, but then there's like a different person. She's like, oh, 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 we got wrong room. (laughs) You know, uh, next one, next one. Let's let's go down one more, you know, and yeah, that's probably Jason from my math class. I, I do love the song that plays during this scene. It's Who Are You Really by Mickey Echo. And it, it it's a great song. And I, I love just that the title is Who Are You Really? Because it's so appropriate for so much of what happens in Teen Wolf. Yeah. So much of Teen Wolf could be summarized with the question, Who Are You Really? All right, Wolfies, that wraps up the beta section for Co-Captain. And now we're about to dive into spoilers, not just for this episode, but for the whole Teen Wolf series. If you want to stay spoiler-free for all of the excellent stories to come, jump out now and we'll catch you next week. But if this isn't your first time in Beacon Hills and you want to hear more, don't move a muscle. Here comes the alpha. You know how every family has its secrets? Ours are a little different. All right, Wolfies, let's jump over to our conversation with Melissa Ponzio, who played Scott's mom, Melissa McCall, on Teen Wolf. Let's have a listen. We want to start off by asking, how did Teen Wolf come into your life? I was out in Los Angeles for pilot season, and my best friend here in Atlanta called me. And she's like, hey, have you gone out for Teen Wolf yet? And I was like, no. And she said, (laughs) (laughs) her name's Tiffany. And if if Tiffany is Snow White, I'm Rose Red. I mean, we are completely, you know, we're sisters, but we look completely different. And, uh, and she's like, you actually look a lot like the kid. And so I looked it up and I was like, 
you look a lot like the kid. And <laughs> at that point, I hadn't been submitted yet. And so called my managers, at least got a, you know, first audition and then um, got a call back. And they were like, you know, we're looking, we're looking for young parents. We're looking for the Gilmore girls kind of vibe, you know, just really easy, you know, young, young, you know, you're a parent, but also there's like this deeper relationship because you guys are kind of growing up together. You know, like a lot of auditions, you don't hear back. And then all of a sudden my manager called me and I want to say it was on a Friday. And he was like, look, you're not the first choice. Oh, but, <laughs> what? But shocking. The other girls, the other girls don't want to go to Atlanta. And, and I was like, well, I'll, uh, you know, I'll go to Atlanta to work, you know, I live in Atlanta. <laughs> Um, and so that's kind of how it started. And then I remember coming back and, you know, working and I remember talking with Susan Walters and I was like, Susan, you know, I mean, I, you know, she, and Susan's been on everything, Lyndon and Susan. And I was like, you know, I wasn't, wasn't the first choice. And she's like, no one ever is. And as soon oh. as she said that, it was like a blessing. You know what I mean? It's just like, she kind of blessed me and I felt good about the whole thing. And, uh, and you know, the rest is history. Well, you're so perfect. I can imagine anyone yes. else in that role. I know, that's crazy. But it's it that is. crazy thing. Like if my best friend hadn't called me, who, Who knows, knows what would have happened? Yeah. It would have been the fourth or fifth choice. I don't think there's any way to imagine anyone else as Aww, Melissa McCall. Great. It's yeah. it's yeah. Melissa Bongio is Melissa McCall. That's the only way to do it. And even like imagining another actor doesn't feel correct. It feels right. And I think a lot of it maybe goes to one the amazing acting. But uh, <laughs> you and Tyler do share a great resemblance. I mean, you do look like mother and son. And, you know, that doesn't always happen on TV shows, but that's okay because you, you understand the casting and you're like, oh, they say, oh, this is mother and son. I got it. That's fine. I, I'm right. buying into this world. And but I mean, when y'all sit like in like, especially in like episode formality, when you're uh, sewing up the pants and you're yeah. sitting next to each other and all that. I it, love that it, scene. Y'all look <laughs> it's so good. So much like mother and son. So, I mean, I, I feel like that definitely helps a lot. Yeah, it was that thing. I think we started mimicking each other a little bit because I, I even have a memory of like sitting on the edge of the bed and kind of like we're both kind of like hunched over having a moment, you know? <laughs> um, so, you know, you kind of adopt each other's mannerisms. I, I feel like we did a little bit, you know? And, you know, we grew up together. I mean, we were all like, we're all a younger cast and to be together for so long, mm -hmm. it's, it's you know, you're gonna, you're gonna pick up on other people's vibes, what they're putting down. So. How would you compare working in Atlanta to working in LA? It's interesting because I started my career in Atlanta. And so when, when you know, uh, for a lot of Atlanta actors, obviously when you're on set, you, you're coming up with people that you've been in the business for a really long time, you know? So not only on Teen Wolf, but even when I worked on The Walking Dead, like the first day on set, people were like, yo, Ponzio, what up? <laughs> you know, just kind of walking into high school again, almost walking into a, a, you know, walking into a family. This is, this is what we do. You know, we build relationships and you remember people and you hope that you leave a, a good impression on people so they hire you again and so to walk on set and people like giving you shout outs and then you got the executive producers going who the hell is this girl like how does she know everybody already <laughs> so that's the fun part of Atlanta and then uh you know working out on Los Angeles it's just a different level out there a little bit you know it's it's uh you know you you feel like you have to walk a little bit you know taller because you never know when some you know executive from MTV or you know all the parent companies are going to be there because they're all in Los Angeles not often would they fly to a different state just to be on set so felt a little bit more buttoned up and then it was larger out in Los Angeles because you know Jeff had the really great idea of making a campus 
So it was 10,000 square feet of Teen Wolf, where when we were in, in Atlanta, we were on location a lot. So there wasn't just one touchstone. You know, we had a production office, but there wasn't the campus. And that's what made it feel like really big. That third season, it's like, whoa, we're all in the same space. It was a lot of fun. The writers weren't able to be on set every day, like on most other shows where it's like, oh, I wrote this episode. I'm on set every single day because I have to be there to make sure the script is being represented and, and the writer's room is being represented. But we didn't get to do that because there was just never enough time. But it was wonderful because if there was ever a question, then JD or someone would run in and be like, hey, we have a question. We need you come out. And it's like, you just walk like 40 feet and you're on, <laughs> and you're then you're like in the tunnels or Eichen House or something. And it's like, okay, we can talk and, and all that. Or you just go around the corner and there's wardrobe or there's makeup effects or there's stunts doing something crazy for the next episode. And it's like, it was wonderful that we all got to be under one roof together. So right. Yeah. And when, when we're on that campus before we had to move, um, I had, well, I mean, I claimed a vacant desk in the production <laughs> office. And so I would be like, that's my desk. And I would go and I would steal office supplies and I would, <laughs> you know, I was pointing people around and I would sit there. And what was really great was that it was so quiet and everybody just, you know, just let me be stupid for a minute, you know, and just kind of sit there and pretend like I was playing office. So that was a lot of fun. <laughs> it was fun. It's really cool as a fan to get to visit and have everything like right there and we'll right? the yeah. tour. We got to see wardrobe, but then we also got to go see where they are filming on set. So it's very cool. Melissa and Scott's relationship feels incredibly genuine and real. What was it like finding and honing in on that relationship with Tyler? So they shot a sizzle reel, I believe, for MTV that did not include the parents. And then when they showed it to MTV and test audiences, they were like, mm, where are the parents? And so... <laughs> And so I think at first, back to that phone call when um, Robbie called me, he was like, you know, it, it probably it's only, probably only going to be like three episodes and then, you know, kind of like Vampire Diaries. All of a sudden, the kids can take care of themselves. <laughs> you won't, you won't, you know, but Jeff was very sage and he wrote the parents in and he, and he opened up, you know, the kids world to us, which most parents crave. I mean, most parents wish that they could be a part of their child's whole world and not have a, you know, a dark corner, so to speak. So I remember the first lunch Tyler and I sat with each other and he was just being his dude self and (laughs) (laughs) really easy and really fun. And I just remember thinking, this is going to be a lot of fun. He's going to be a lot of fun. And he was, you know, I mean, he was, he was our, uh, you know, even as young as he was a very fearless leader. I mean, there's something to be said to be um, number one on the call sheet. Everybody looks to you for, for tone for the day and work ethic and all of those things. And, you know, and, and to, to lead us all in a way. And he did that. He's just a a genuinely super sweet soul, sweetest soul. So, you know, how, how could you not love working with someone like that. We haven't talked to a single person who doesn't adore him. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Everyone loves him. Yeah. And then also, you, you know, where you're coming with him too. You know, I mean, I don't want to say that it's, you know, blistering honesty, but I mean, if you ask him how he's doing, you know, if you are a friend, he will tell you. And so, you know, where you are with him and you, you have a reciprocal relationship. And that's what everybody builds on. Need more Teen Wolf in my life. <laughs> Don't we all? Right? Going back to that scene in Formality we were talking about, I love Melissa's monologue to Scott where she tells him to express his feelings to Allison. What's your favorite line or moment with Melissa in the first season? It's funny that you say the first season. There's just so many that are flashing through my head. And, you know, we have a different sense memory of things. 
than, than anyone that's watching it because we have the sense memory of being there shooting it, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's not in the first season and I wanna say that it's in the fifth season, but there's there's a moment where um, I come to him and we were at, we're at a dinner table. He's crying, he's very upset and I just hold him. And in that moment, that was a real, you know, nothing was said, but it was just a real loving moment and he was holding on to my arm. And what you don't know is that it was the day before Thanksgiving and I was trying to get on a flight and everybody was freaking out because it was like 10 o'clock and I was trying to catch the red eye and it was like, are we gonna do this? And so there's all this like momentum and stuff that's happening behind it. But you wouldn't know, you wouldn't know. And so they're like, okay, we gotta do this. And it's like, you gotta like hone it all in and you know, and then like blaze out of there. And so it's it's interesting when you're shooting, you know, what you're literally going through in real life and what you're trying to portray can actually be two completely different things. And you just got to kind of shelf it. And, and those are the things that I remember. It's like what was happening in real life when certain scenes were going on. That's so funny. Cause yeah, you would never know that was such like no. a beautiful scene. That, right? <laughs> okay, I've got to get to fly and get out of here. Guys. <laughs> I want to see my family. <laughs> right. That's one of the things I love most about TV and film is that all that matters is the frame. You know, like whatever's happening there is what we're locked in on. It doesn't matter that if you stepped aside from the camera, it's like, well, there's there's 10 C-stands with flags and then the mic, and then someone's got the smoke machine over there and all this type of stuff. But but the frame is beautiful and perfect. And you're like, oh God, this scene is, it's so perfect. And then you don't realize that it's actually so hard. There's so much actually happening that you can see that the audience is not able to see. And Right. We have to suspend our belief a lot more than I think people realize. Right. Um, I'm, you know, there's, there's scenes where, you know, the camera's like right here. Like, <laughs> how do you ignore that? <laughs> right. You've worked on multiple shows that have strong fan followings, like The Walking Dead and Chicago Fire. So how did working on those shows compare to working on Teen Wolf? Well, you know, they're all their own little family and they're all their own little um, universe. And uh, they were, I was still very honored to be a part of all of them. And it's interesting, you know, as I travel or as I meet people, you know, for me, like who, what's the first, oh, I, you know, I saw you in this or, you know, and every once in a while it's a, hey, army wives or something, you know, back in (laughs) back in the way, way back. And so it's it's interesting. Never never in a million years would I have ever thought that I would have been on a show that had any show that had the level of fandom. Like this is, I like to say when I was growing up, if you wanted somebody's headshot, you like rode away to a post office box and nine months later, you're hoping <laughs> maybe something comes in the mail, maybe. And it's not even a real signature. It's just like a stamp. Like now you have ways of communicating through social media and through fan conventions and through just knowing where you're shooting and people showing up. I think a lot of people would agree that Melissa McCall is the emotional heart of Teen Wolf. Why do you think fans find Melissa so compelling? Well, that's very kind of you to say uh, both both things. It's very sweet and, and very humbling to hear that. I think it's because Jeff wrote her from his own experience with his own mother. So there was already a heartbeat there. You know, he had lived through a lot of the things that I said, um, not only from his mom, but he um, some conversations that he had with his brother. And Jeff's a twin. So there, there were some conversations that he had with his twin that actually he wrote into. So that was pretty interesting to know. You know, he would come over and he'd be like, okay, my mom said this to me once. And so this is what I need you to say, you know? <laughs> oh, <laughs> wonderful. Down. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. So mm, don't do that. You know, <laughs> I mean, well, that's kind of, that's, that's kind of, right? That's pretty spot on. 
That's pretty so, spot on. And so I pay I pay homage to his mom and and you know and how he he was she reared her family in order to make such an impression on him that he honored her by putting it into words for someone else to speak. So that's pretty wild. Do you have a favorite memory from season one? There wasn't one memory other than booking it. You know, I mean, that was pretty amazing because, you you know, as an actor, for us, it's it's the lottery, right? It's like you have to go on so many auditions in order to to book that one thing that might be that one thing that, you know, is the juggernaut. I just remember shooting it and, and really having a fun time. And Jeff was on set and everybody was figuring out their way. And we were like, yeah, this, you know, this this is a lot of fun. And hey, let's, you know, let's see what happens. And then all of a sudden when it was on and it became this juggernaut. That is what I remember. I remember like feeling a certain way the first season and then feeling a completely different way second season because we had been seen. You know what I mean? And there's a there's a different feeling to it. And there's a there's a certain level of um, expectation and pressure and, um, you know, that, that you put on yourself and also that's put on you because now it's like, you're on everybody's radar. And I always, I was like, okay, if, if one parent has to go, it's going to be me. I know, I know they're going to, they're going to, they're going to get me. I'm going to, I'm going to be the one that's dead. They're going to bring back the dad. Like I was always afraid. I was always like looking in the, you know, winds, but that's normal. Everybody does that. Well, I always thought that, um, you know, for a while there, there was a, a talk of like a spinoff just, you know, I think all amongst ourselves. And, and I always thought that there would be really great to have an Eichen House spinoff. And what if it started with um, Melissa opening up her eyes and being there? Because I think as as a healthcare awesome. provider, you know, yeah. But I mean, as a nurse, I think just waking up in a hospital has a certain level of terror. Like, how did oh, I get yeah. here? What happened? Who's taking care of me? You know, I know that noise. Wait a minute. You know, like all of that disorientation of, you know, wait, I'm supposed to be the one that makes someone better. Why, why, why am I the sick one now? Right. I, you know, so certain level of terror that, uh, and I always thought that a Eichen House spinoff would have been grand. It would have been I fun. Would've... Yeah, that would have been really cool. Yeah. Have you texted Jeff that? You should text right now. <laughs> I would have watched right? the hell out of that. Or, I mean, because she's a medical professional, it would be really cool, like, if it were kind of investigative and she, like, gets a job there undercover to get to the root of, like, what's really happening there. That would have been really cool, too. Yeah. Absolutely. Which scene or episode was the most fun to film? Gosh, they were all fun to film. I mean, I think that, you know, the parents were really involved in season three, you know, just mm. in total, you know, and so that was a really great season. And then the last scene with Tyler, with 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 Scott and Melissa in the hospital, you know, me being in, because that was the last scene that we shot. And we actually shot it a couple of days before the actual series wrap. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that either one of, we were still writing while we, <laughs> while we were shooting. And so there were all these things that were happening and I, we didn't really know who was, you know, how, how much of person and who's coming back and what's he, what's. So I personally didn't know that that was going to be our last scene. And, you know, we had both lost our moms in real life and we have both have that kind of um, touchstone of hospital life. And so it was very moving. It was very moving for me and for him. And, um, and we, we, we actually did this thing where, uh, um, so in my family, we put our foreheads together, you know, as, as a sign of like, you know, love. And they had us doing 
doing something else. I don't know if he was like holding my hand or, you know, kissing my forehead or something. And I was like, Hey, I had this idea because I wanted to pay homage to my family. And I was like, Hey, what, how would you feel about if we put our foreheads together? And he was like, that's what our family does. We put our foreheads together. That's what we did. And there's this moment where he comes in and just we touch foreheads. And for me, that was just like, just such a, such a moment, such an emotional thing for so many reasons. So that, yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah, it's wonderful. It really, it was really wonderful for us to have that um, experience. You know, all of us, all the cast has, you know, we, it's kind of like life's little ups and downs and we were able to talk about things. And so that was really special. Sounds very special. That's so wonderful. Cause I guess, again, a lot of times, like when you're watching something, you're just thinking about like the words on the script that must've been used for this scene and like what that's bringing to it. But then to know that the actors in this scene have brought something very personal into it. I mean, that great, that gives another great layer to a story that probably often gets overlooked or not overlooked because it's just, you don't know, not everybody has access to, to talk to all actors in all stories and be like, so how was that process like, or what, the, what was that process like? So, but knowing that you have an already an intensely personal scene between these two characters, but then adding this other layer of the two actual actors are bringing something intensely personal to it. I feel like it just, it just makes it even more more tangible and real when you're actually watching it or, or on a rewatch. So. Yeah. Melissa McCall is one of the human members of Scott's pack, but if she did have a superpower, what do you think it would be? The ability to have a vacation from the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> she does seem to be the only nurse that works there. I mean, I or, mean. Well, Definitely the only one that actually does her job properly, that's for sure. Well, when you're the best, people keep asking you to do work. You that's know, right. So it's, that's what happens. I don't know. You know, I keep coming back to the fact that I think that uh, being a nurse is kind of having a superpower, you know, being mm-hmm. in the healthcare, uh, you know, to touchstone on real times. I mean, being in the healthcare industry now is really having a superpower <laughs> and Absolutely. a super determination and um, a super uh, tenacity that I don't think that you know, us regular folk really understand or fully understand yet, you know, even with all the stories. So, you know, people often ask, would you want to play a supernatural? And I feel like there has to be also a certain amount of humanity in order to bridge the gap. And so, you know, f- for me, I, I like always being on the kind of human side of it. And and like you said, Will, you know, the, 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 the humans were the ones that were most the monsters, you know what I'm saying? So yeah, just makes it so good. Mm-hmm. Just so good. <laughs> We did a poll on Instagram asking fans whether they would want Derek or Scott as an alpha. And by the way, Scott won by a landslide. But I kind of found myself wondering about other characters on the show, like Lydia Martin or Kira Yukimura, whom we first meet in 3B, or Melissa McCall. So what do you think Melissa would be like if she were the alpha of her own pack? And that could be, I I would ask that question even if she is still human, you know? It's just about recognizing authority, right? Yeah, that's interesting because <laughs> um, at first when you were asking me, I thought maybe you were going to ask me like, whose pack would I want to be under? And I was like, well, I think that Edie Mays, <laughs> Mama Argent, um, definitely would uh, be a great leader and also um, just uh, steadfast to the end and protect everyone. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure I would want to be a pack leader, but, you know, I'm just naturally allergic to responsibility. So it's, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I always like to say I really don't have any marketable skills and I'm allergic to responsibility. So uh, <laughs> that doesn't make a really great leader. But what is it? Um, 
bravery resides in every heart and one day it'll be called upon. So if needed, I take up the sword. Sure. Well, Scott doesn't start, start off the series as, you know, seem, someone who seems like he could take on being an alpha. It certainly works out for him. So he, he also seems to be a little bit allergic to responsibility, <laughs> like in season one, especially in, um, you know, in co-captain in 110, he was like, you know, you don't want this. Right. When he's, you know, when, you know, Scott is talking with Jackson, he's like, you, this is, this is actually, this is a curse. It's not a, a blessing. And right. then it's that whole thing of like, I don't want to kill anybody. And then by season six, it's like, I kill everyone. <laughs> <laughs> like, get out of my way. Yeah. So um, very interesting, you know, but I think also that's, you know, for the first season, you know, you're trying to figure it out. You know, mm -hmm. you, 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 this has just kind of landed on you and you're trying to, you, you don't want to sink, you want to swim with it. And so, um, and I think that there was such an innocence with, you know, looking back at that script and, and others too, with grappling and trying to figure out something that has just been literally just landed on you. I, I don't even know what that would be like, you know, it would almost be yeah. like going through, um, you know, a, a head trauma and waking up and only speaking Spanish. Relearning yeah. how to do everything. Yes. Relearning yeah. how to do everything. Because now, you know, you can't, you have to learn a different way because now I can hear everybody and I can, you know, I'm like a shark. I can smell something, you know, a thousand yards away and I can feel, feel people's energies and remember the heartbeat and all that, all that stuff that is, you know, that was well written into the script that affected somebody. Can you imagine? That'd be crazy. It would be very intense and overwhelming I feel like just that yeah. constant information barrage that being able to I guess finally weed out the information you need and to kind of muffle everything else so it, it, it does not seem fun at all not to mention the whole werewolf aspect on top of <laughs> yes on top of yes <laughs> Who is your favorite actor or character to share a scene with? And was there any character that you wish you had more scenes with? You know, as the series progressed, it was really interesting. Um, I had this conversation with Shelly, actually, that we all kind of got to work with other people out of each other's kind of circle in the into fifth and into the sixth season. Um, and I and I and I mentioned Shelly because I really liked working with her. We didn't have, you know, a bunch of time together, but she's she's funny. She is a funny, funny lady. And so I would have, uh, you know, wished for more scenes with her. She's just a really great spirit. She and Kira were just such great breaths of fresh air onto the show and brought just new dynamics to the pack, you know, which is, I guess, what you're always looking for with pack members. So. How about that scene where they're dancing together? Wasn't that fun? Oh, so good. Yes. So good. That was like, yeah. so good. And I didn't know. I was like... Oh girl Shelly can dance like she got moves I didn't know that she was classically trained so um that's another fun aspect but yeah a lot of fun do you have kind of a a, a clear memory of actually shooting co-captain or is it too scattered to to be able to say to be able to say like hear all these memories and experiences from co-captain well again it's that thing of um you know, the, I, I, what I remember was something that happened not on screen. It was how, how is Melissa McCall going to be dressed for her date? Oh, uh, yes. Right. And so it was that thing of, you know, Jeff's influence um, along with Barbara, like picking the right outfit, the right tone. And they had me in at first and then moving it completely to something a little bit more like young hip mom, you know? And so all those choices that you kind of make in the first season, you know, inform hopefully what happens all the way through however many seasons that you are lucky enough to have. So that's, that's what I remember. And I also remember that um, I'm wearing a pair of um, actually Lydia's pants. 
that were in oh. her that were in her costume, oh, wow. a pair of like black pants that I got to got to wear. So I stole those from Holland, actually, um, <laughs> just like little. Um, uh, they were obviously too tight on me, but I had a longer I had a longer jacket, so we we didn't see that particular area. But um, that's fine too. It's like sometimes you know when they're when they're just grabbing and, and putting something together, like we did that night. So that that I do remember. Um, shooting that will. I do love that scene when when she comes in and you know Scott and Allison are having this very like serious discussion and yeah. until they're like oh my god it's like a like a double take situation where they're like oh, oh what yeah. what is happening yeah <laughs> especially I think for Scott because like you know she's his mom but like also she's a babe you know <laughs> yeah, and that's 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 yeah. weird for a teenager yeah. to have to yeah. grapple with that. <laughs> Yeah, it's like kind of like when you see your mom, you know, and especially like a mom in scrubs all the time, you know, not necessarily figure flattering, not necessarily, uh, you know, very, very utilitarian. And so right. all of a sudden it's like when, you, when you're a little polished, it's, you know, people react to you differently. Um, yeah, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> so some of the characters on Teen Wolf kind of uh, oscillate between good and evil over the course of the show. With Peter, for instance, you really never know what you're going to get with him. Mm. Did you ever want something to happen with Melissa so that you could play evil on the show? You know, Jeff was pretty steadfast in like, she is the best mom ever. She is the most supportive. She is the most loving. She's the most understanding. Um, she's never really chastising. You know, it's always, it's always support, support, support. And so I understood where he was coming from. And also it it also led to me understanding how important it is, or it has been for people that watch the show who have mentioned to me, you know, when they're watching a mom that they wish that they had, which is very telling. It's, it, can be, it can be sad and it can be happy in, in the stories that are being told. And so being on the other side of it, Kate, like not being evil and, and being good through the whole thing uh, garnered a, 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 an emotional response from people that watched it that I, um, I am honored to have now. When, when people say, you know, things like, I wish, I wish Melissa McCall was my mom, or even I wish you were my mom. You know what I mean? Like maybe, you know, blurring the line a little bit. And so again, I say it like never in a million years did I think that I would be like a mother figure to people or I would have portrayed a mother figure to people and people feel, you know, compelled to have honest conversations with me when they, when I see them. And it's just, it's mind blowing. So, so no, only for that reason. Like, of course, like as an actor, you're like, well, you know, what if she picks up a gun? Like, <laughs> 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 well, you know, I've had guns on other shows, you know, but I mean, it's like, you know, you sometimes, you know, the hand that you play out is actually the best hand. Building off of that, the passion of the Teen Wolf fans, they are just so dedicated. Do you have any other fan stories you'd like to share? My dog Buns passed away. And I want to say that it was in the third season and um, someone from the fandom found out about it. And at one of the conventions had hand knit me like a, a dog toy for her. You know what I mean? And so it knew that I had, you know, knew that I had had buns, got me the dog toy. And then I think that she made contact again with me. I might be mixing things up, but it's like little things like that, like um, that were, have always been very heartwarming and wonderful or, you know, support on other shows um, you know, running into people randomly in Australia, you know what I mean? Like that, <laughs> those kinds of things that you, again, you never thought would ever happen, you know, being recognized halfway across the world. I mean, that, that, that to me is pretty amazing. 
and you know, and how um, passionate you know the fans are of the show, the family of the show, that wherever they are in the world, they will find it. You know, that's something that's also uh, uh, kind of blows my mind. You know, um, we met these girls in London, and I call them my Saudi girls because they're from Saudi Arabia, and it doesn't show there. But you know, that that it was the first convention that we ever had for Teen Wolf. It was over in London, and I actually um, met them at Piccadilly Circus. I think we were. And we just had a conversation and they were saying the, you know, the hoops that they had to jump through in order to get access to the show and what a great show it was. And it's like, wow, that's, that's wild. That's a wild moment. That's definitely not something you would like think about, but that's really incredible. Yeah. Incredible. It it's really incredible. You've had so many comments from fans about wanting more Teen Wolf and mostly another a seventh season, but also people asking about spinoffs and everything. Would you want to be part of a reboot or a revival or spinoff if there was someone? Oh, of course. I mean, it would be an honor, um, you know, and I and I thought that maybe when the quarantine happened, you know, there were the all this percolation, all this under like this. OK, well, maybe we'll get this cast together because they've already worked together and it's automatic chemistry. And I was like, well, why don't you get Tamil together? <laughs> <Yes. laughs> <I mean, laughs> hey, um, you know, because I think that um, if not a seventh season to, to roll into other seasons, I think there's probably 10 more episodes that we could put together of uh, who's doing what now. And it would be really interesting because there's there's so many characters that you could touch on and, and how, you know, weave in and out. And so, yeah, I mean, I think it's a very viable thing. But everybody, you know, time has moved on. Time stops for no one and everyone is involved in so many other, you know, uh, projects and endeavors. Um, it would be an amazing feat to get everybody back together. So when the show ended, were there any props or items from the show that you took with you? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I took all sorts of stuff. I five finger discounted so many things. I have no idea. I took all my scrubs. I took my shoes. I took a mug out of the library. I feel like I'm confession right now. I, I, <laughs> Uh, you know, little things like that, but I, I just had to move a whole bunch of stuff around in my house. But um, the one thing that I think I have that no one else has that I probably even shouldn't say because then it'll be out there. But I have, <laughs> I guess it was the art department printed me out a map of Beacon Hills because there was oh, a map hey. in the, oh. sheriff's, the office. sheriff's office. Yeah. Right. Yep. And I remember asking for that specifically and they were like, why do you want a map? And I was like, because I, I collect maps. I have maps all over my house. And then when I got it, they were like, that's pretty cool. And it's on this really nice paper. And so um, I should probably get that framed. That's if I get it awesome. framed, I'll send a picture of it for you guys. Thank you. I was just going to say, Will's a big map nerd. So I don't know if you can see like the way his face lit up just then, but it was, yeah. Maps yeah. are great. Maps are, maps are awesome. I remember because I, you know, one of the things that I'd like to do is I'd like to take behind the scenes photos, you know, and I remember taking picture of the map and then like the four quadrants of the map and people really responding to that. And I remember every time I was in the sheriff's station, I was like, so where exactly are we on this map? <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're living in a fantasy world. This isn't yes. really a real place, Melissa, but um, that's a water tower. Like, you know, so same thing, Will. I've got maps all over. And then that hospital, Beacon Hills Hospital, where Ooh. nothing good ever happened in the elevator. And nothing yes. good ever happened in that elevator. Nope. Nothing good. Yeah, that, no, it, that hospital has seen some shit. <laughs> yes, it has. I, I honestly feel like that there are people who live 
they're like people who lived in Beacon Hills NPCs or whatever. And they'd be like, oh God, I hurt my arm. I need to go to the hospital. And someone's like, or let's drive to the next town. <laughs> the power is out. There's monsters there probably, you know. They have just, one nurse. So if she's busy, what's going to happen? Works. Exactly. Yeah. So it's like, you're going to have to wait to see her, you know? So it's just, no, we're just going to drive the next town san francisco just go to san francisco or, or whatever i mean um i'm telling you what i think the now that we're talking about it i think the hospital was the beacon uh, yeah yeah absolutely I mean, that not was the, the nematon it was the hospital where yeah. everybody got to and all the everything went down yeah <laughs> but it was fantastic it was so much fun to watch yes. and awful but fun what did you find to be the most challenging aspect playing melissa know if it was challenging but you know it was it was my first time playing a character all the way you know that had a thread line all the way through so many seasons Mm -hmm. and so you know it wasn't necessarily challenging but what the challenge was was to maybe remember something that happened in season two that would inform something that happened in season five you know and and that's that's an honor that we get you know not very often to have to play the same character i mean you you were very lucky as an actor to first be on a show and second to be on a show that continues for any kind of seasons and then for you not to be replaced (laughs) you know what i mean right (laughs) um and so that that was a good acting challenge is to remember all of that and so uh and, and to let that inform as this as the story went on are there any upcoming projects you'd like to tell us about Oh yeah, sure. Teen Wolf season seven. No, I'm kidding. Our our inbox would explode. Yeah, it just explode. People just heard it from far and just blown up my phone. That was a little uh, joke, little inside joke. That's you know, it's not. It was a joke. It wasn't real. Everybody. Um, so I've been um, lucky during the 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 um, quarantine pandemic to work in in Atlanta a little bit, and um, I have a role on. First Wives Club, which is streaming on BET. Nice. And I just did actually a, um, a podcast called Bridgewater that was written by Lauren Shippen. Um, and the producers of Lore are behind that. Uh, oh, but I, cool. just, I, can, I don't think I can say anything more about it right now. Okay. <laughs> Lucky enough, Donna continues to, uh, you know, to survive on Chicago fire. She hasn't been in a fire. So fantastic. That's always fun. Really good. Awesome. Thank you for, you know, the trip down memory lane, not only for cast and crew, but, you know, for everybody that watched the show. And I hope that when people do the, you know, the rewatch of it, that they find something different in each episode and and find something that they like. And, you know, it took a village over many, many years to put it together. And, you know, and I think, you know, what, what did Lyndon always used to say? You know, everybody that is here wants to be here. You know, it was mm-hmm. it was it was a tough show at times. It really was because yeah. you know it was like we were shooting an independent feature every eight days, and mm-hmm. everything that, that that meant from the top down, every department, you had to come to work and and, and expect the unexpected. And so, and uh, you know, hey, we pulled it off. So um, you know, and when you look back on it everybody should be really proud of everything that they contributed to the show because it wouldn't be the show we love without everybody's literally like blood, sweat, and tears every day. Lots of tears. Yes, lots of tears. (laughs) So many tears. The dedication of the uh, cast and crew really comes through. You can tell how much everyone wanted to make the best product possible. It's just a beautiful show. 
especially that first season, you know, there was a, there were a lot of 20 hour days and there were a lot of outside shots for that lacrosse. And there was, it was, it was, it was a grind. And, uh, you know, I think if, if we could have, you know, we made it through that first season, we may, we could make it through any season. Absolutely. Absolutely. Is there any message you want to give to the fans? Oh, hi. hi (laughs) thanks for being here and um i hope you enjoy the podcast and i hope you enjoy every rewatch that you do of teen wolf and just know that um you know we wouldn't have a show without you there would be no teen wolf without the fans all that blood that's right 100 would be for not if people weren't watching (laughs) or or as devoted to the show and to the cast and to everybody as our amazing fans are Thanks, you guys. Yes, this has been thank fun. Thank you. Thank you so, so much. Thank you so much for Thanks. joining us. Such a pleasure talking yes, to you. Yeah. Yay! Earlier, we were talking about the actions of the Argents and how they relate back to Allison. Calissa, you had some thoughts on this, but through the lens of Scott and his dad. He doesn't have a close relationship with his father, and there's definitely some history there where his father's not a great guy. Mm-hmm. And I feel like he wouldn't want to be defined by his father's actions and would feel like his own person. So I don't understand why Allison can't just be separate from the rest of the Argents. That's an interesting point. And actually, even in the first season, we do get, you know, we get that scene with Melissa and Mr. Harris where she says we're better off without Scott's father. And I think he knows that. I hope he knows that. So even though we don't really get much of that from Scott, we have at least the suggestion that Scott might or probably does consider his life better with his father not in it. So you're right. I, I hadn't really thought of it in those terms, but you would think that based on his relationship with his father or lack thereof, that he would be open to the idea of not subscribing to sins of the father, so to speak. Right. Yeah. Especially if, like, you know, he believes that Allison doesn't know what her family does. Mm-hmm. So there's no way she could be involved in it. Which is based on, again, that's based on solid evidence because he's right. seen her react in these situations where if she had knowledge of the supernatural, she would respond very differently. I don't really understand the shower scenes that we get with Peter in the flashbacks. What do you guys think those are about? I don't either. And having watched this episode multiple times, I'm always like, where are you? Why is this Why is this <laughs> happening? Because it it almost looks like, I mean, he's in a wheelchair. Am I correct right. about yeah, that? Yeah, he's in a wheelchair. He's in a wheelchair. He's clearly burned, but he's being pelted with water from the shower head excruciatingly. And there's like no one around. water with the steam. Yeah. Right. It's just like, why are your doctors allowing this to happen? Which... My next thought was then maybe Peter was actually for the beginning of his very slow convalescence in Eichenhaus. And this was like their hydrotherapy. I like the idea that he was in Eichen early on. I don't know why he would have been moved to a different facility, but that makes the most sense just because it looks like he's being tortured, you know, with hot water. And I'm like, who would do that? Oh, I know an orderly (laughs) who I will not name. Looking back over the entirety of this series, our characters are put through the ringer quite a few times, but watching season one again, it's so interesting seeing them so happy, especially Styles. Calissa, what do you think about this? I totally imagine Styles had an imaginary friend that was a child, like a small child. Hmm. Yeah. I feel like he would have had like a very elaborate one. He would have been one of those kids that like, mom, you have to put out a plate for, you know, Mr. Kerfunkel to eat with us. Mr. Void. I actually would have really enjoyed if the Void had taken on the name of Styles' childhood friend. 
That would have been a really childhood cool. imaginary friend. Hello, yeah. Styles. It's Mr. Garfunkel. Ah, <laughs> that was really cute when I said it in my head, and now it sounds really scary. But you know, the sad thing, since we are making each other sad, you know, watching first season, Styles is so happy, and yeah, he's just excited to go drink like milk out of the carton in the fridge, as if, oh yay. I remember to do the grocery shopping or dad did and we've got milk in here and it's the best day ever. And then like, you know, after everything happens with like Boyd and everything, he is never the same. Mm-mm. I yeah. like that. I mean, I like it in terms of like, you know, writing and character growth and stuff, but it also just like breaks my heart. Yeah. It's, it is it is a tragedy. And keeping this tragedy train going, we were talking earlier about some bad touching, specifically with Kate and Peter. What are our thoughts on this? I feel like Peter's different. I feel like whenever he does any touching, he only really does it to people he's actually in some way attracted to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He never touches Derek. Mm-mm. And he doesn't really like, yeah, I feel like he doesn't touch a lot of people like he's almost like on those slings around like a cat and feels like almost like I feel like Ugh, that person's dirty I don't want to touch them yes they're like, below me feels, they're below me unless it's someone he's actually in some way attracted to and then he's willing to touch them which is like a very select few actually right the, the commonality is that when he does deploy touch as a tool it is uncomfortable <laughs> yeah like always I mean, think about how, like, I, I feel like there's something, like, weirdly sexual. I mean, maybe it's just, like, mouth on skin or whatever. But, like, whenever he offers Styles the bite, when he takes it and he holds his wrist up mm-hmm. to his mouth, I feel like it's a very, oh, very like, sort I, of I sexual thing. Really think well, I, I wouldn't be surprised if he got some kind of pleasure out of that. Because, I mean, you are, like, irrevocably changing somebody on like a cellular level, you know? And I feel like he might be into that somehow. I don't know. Also, I mean, there's sort of a whole, I'm trying to find a a better way to say this, but it might not exist, but like there's sort of a whole penetrative thing with fangs, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. We normally see that with more so with vampires. Right. Is that there's kind of an inherent sexual energy to vampire mythos that's why there are so many like romantic tragic vampire figures yeah. or, and and there's also you know the Lufanu uh Carmilla you know where it, it Carmilla is the the original story is basically a parable against lesbianism and that's why Wolfies you should watch the web series Carmilla there is that kind of element to a lot of vampire stories we see that i think a little bit less with werewolves because the focus isn't always on the transmission mm-hmm. or on the like feeding because yeah it's more of like they have fangs because wolves have sharp teeth right as opposed to like vampires where this is like this is one of the very few features about vampires unless we're talking about like a nosferatu type vampire that's actually differentiated from a regular human so there right. there's there's sort of a different like vibe to that yeah but so we don't really see that sexual penetrative element used as much in werewolf mythos because they're wild animals because they're wild animals yeah but i do think you could make an argument that you see it here yeah that this is an example of sort of that same 
aspect of like sublimated penetrative yeah. fantasy. Yeah. Do you think it would have been as sexual if Peter had been like, do you want the bite? <laughs> you want a little and nibble? Then, and then Styles was like, nibble? definitely not now. <laughs> like, Did you do that to Scott? He didn't mention that in the story. <laughs> my balls have retreated back up into my body. It's possible I'll never be aroused again. <laughs> uh, we have fun. We do. We do have fun. I think going into next week's episode... Kate's going to have some real explaining to do. Yeah, but the basketball bit, not only was it a callback to the original film, but it's also foreshadowing because we see Peter's plaque in season two for him being a basketball star. Right, yeah. A lot's changed since Peter went to that high school. They completely gave up on basketball and traditional sports and did lacrosse instead. I bet Peter 100% cheated his way through basketball. Like he gave full yes. with Wolfie, Wolfie strength there. He should not have been playing. And if I remember correctly, the in On Fire, they say that they're not allowed to play sports, which yeah. is, I feel, correct. That is the correct rule because there's something right about how Derek is a really good swimmer that's why he likes to go to the Beacon Hills high school pool mm-hmm. but he's not allowed to be on the swim team because it would be unfair so he just swims recreationally until I assume the sequence of events there ruins that pastime for him right so much ruining on this show so much ruining everything it's like don't dare like something it gonna get ruined but you know what he's like still I think deep down under many layers of sour wolf still, I think a good person. Oh yeah. Yes. Yeah. I don't think there's ever a question that he's a bad person. And that's a testament to his strength of character because when Allison said that thing a few episodes ago about, you know, it wouldn't turn me into a psychotic killer. First of all, lies, Allison lies. Second of all, you can't know what that would feel like i mean that's the kind of earth-shaking all-encompassing tragedy that no one could possibly fathom except to experience it and frankly if it had turned him into a psychotic killer i'd kind of be like i get it i mean if i imagine something like that happening to the degree that i even can imagine it i'm like yeah i'd lose my shit i'd lose my mind yeah so i don't you know i honestly would not have judged that harshly if he had just been a maniac but he's really not. I mean, he he's very, very maladjusted. But in context, he's remarkably well-adjusted given what happened. Yeah. You know? Yeah, definitely. That concludes this week's episode of Return to Beacon Hills. We hope you had as much fun listening as we did talking about all things Teen Wolf. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at RTBH Podcast, as well as on Tumblr and TikTok at Return to Beacon Hills. If you'd like to ask us questions or offer suggestions for future topics to discuss, you can email us at returntobeaconhills at gmail.com. And don't forget to find us at patreon.com slash rtbhpodcast for more awesome exclusives. Join us here next week when we discuss season one, episode 11, Formality. For our interview, we talked to writer Angela Harvey and Matt McDonough, former director of online engagement at MTV. Rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast goodness. Have a great week, and we'll see you again soon on Return to Beacon Hills. Dude, it's Beacon Hills.